podcast one production. Jenny Cooney has been a part of Hollywood for 30 years, reporting on all the Aussie stars, from Hoags to the Hemsworths, Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie and beyond. This is Aussies in Hollywood. I'm so glad I finally got to catch up with Catherine Martin on a recent trip to New York. She's one of our national treasures, winning four, count them, Academy Awards for costume and production design on both Moulin Rouge and The Great Gatsby. Catherine, or CM as her friends call her, teamed up with fellow NIDA graduate turned husband Baz Luhrmann on his first film, Strictly Ballroom, in 1992. And they've collaborated on every film since, including Romeo and Juliet and Australia, as well as other great creative projects that span from a Chanel commercial to Puccini's opera La Boheme on Broadway. Catherine has been so passionate about creating the right atmosphere on a set, she doesn't even mind building her own film sets and has some great stories to tell about that. Here's CM. Uh, yes, I do. I'm actually dealing with that in therapy right now. <laughs> what a what a New Yorker thing to say. <laughs> and we're sitting in the most amazing office in New York that I've been to. Um, we're on the 15th floor and this is your sp- creative space? Yes, we're very lucky. We're actually borrowing it for a short period of time while we actually look for far less salubrious digs. <laughs> um, but we're very lucky that someone has taken pity on us and given us these luxuri- this luxurious environment, which um, belies our true creative state right now <laughs> so we we live in fear of being kicked out could happen any moment um like there's about five different job titles for you costume designer set designer art director production designer film producer you've won two oscars for Moulin rouge two for great gatsby what do you, how would how do you describe yourself are you all of those things is there one part of you that you feel most describes well, uh, I think probably I think of myself, it's really interesting, this is a bit like therapy, the first word that popped into my head is mother. Um, I think that's the job I take the most seriously and I probably do the least well. Um, well, I think that's what all working mothers think anyway. But, yeah, to me I think having children um, has been the biggest adventure and the best thing that I've ever done in my life and it certainly provides a centre to my existence that before having children I couldn't even imagine. So yeah, to me I see that probably as my primary role and I think I have a lot of titles because Baz and I work ostensibly in an old-fashioned family business where there is, we're in a mom and pop store really and Um, Baz kind of drives the engine and I spruce up the store and shovel the coal. He shovels the coal too. We do a little bit of everything to keep the train on the road. Right. Um, So I think that's why I end up with a lot of job titles. But I think also women are good at multitasking. And I think design is an interesting field because it's a problem-solving field. So it's all about looking at the set of circumstances, you have a certain amount of time, you have the vision of the director, the opinion of the actor, 
you have a certain amount of money and you have to somehow cobble something together that satisfies all of the requirements of a group of people. And I think that skill set really applies itself to almost any job. Mm. So, well, let's go back to the beginning. You have a very different upbringing to Bads. You, you were born in Linfield, New South Wales. You had a French mum, an Aussie dad, and they were academics um, from they'd been at the Sorbonne and all of that. So what was that sort of childhood like for you and when did you sort of find yourself, you know, gravitating towards what you do now? Look, I was brought up in the North Shore in the 70s in Australia and I was bilingual and if you remember kind of the xenophobic Australia of the 1970s, having a second language and routinely going back to France um, was on the one hand, of course, it's turned out to be a great advantage, but at the time I used to I'm not very religious, but I used to pray to be normal, in inverted commas. I just wanted to be a surfer and be, in inverted commas, normal and have, in inverted commas, normal parents. Um, My mother um, has been sick, mentally ill all her life. She's a very functioning human She was a brilliant mother, always took great care of Andrew and I. So we didn't ever – it wasn't like it was this abusive or traumatising background, but we were aware that mum had manic depressive episodes and she had a couple of schizophrenic episodes while we were growing up, always been well taken care of, always acknowledged in the family. It wasn't like this terrible black cloud, but that was also embarrassing that it was something we talked about and acknowledged and we didn't pretend it wasn't happening. That wasn't the fashion to accept and um, kind of acknowledge mental illness. So I think, you know, it was a complicated childhood because obviously my parents' relationship wasn't always smooth sailing um, and we travelled a lot and... My parents were very um, socially liberal and um, I would say forward thinking and left wing. So all those things kind of made for a slightly uncomfortable... um, My father always jokes that he was the only Labor voter in Linfield and he (laughs) used to very proudly tell all the liberals, you know that he was going to vote Labor. (laughs) So, yeah, look, I look now at my childhood and I'm just very grateful for it, but I wasn't a very good child. I didn't like being a child. I found it kind of boring um, and I wasn't very good at playing. I like to make things and I like to have some kind of um, agency in the world and that's difficult when you're seven. (laughs) You you started sort of gravitating towards uh, fashion and clothing and sewing and all of that very young, right? I loved – my mother was a very good uh, home dressmaker. You know, an entire industry basically has died. Um, the sewing machine, the home sewing machine, luckily quilters have kept that 
piece of machinery alive and the local fabric store. I mean, now that's a very specialised thing in a very specialised area. But even at Linfield, we used to have a pattern and fabric store, a local one. And my mother used to make a lot of my clothes. And she also made what I loved, which were mother and daughter outfits, which I, the same dress. Oh, I just used to love that. And You're um, not being sarcastic about that? No, I just it. thought it was really, we had, there was a Vogue pattern that was a, uh, an Yves Saint Laurent Vogue couture pattern, which was his Mondrian dress. And I remember having a Mondrian dress and my mother having a Mondrian dress wow. and just thinking that that was beyond fabulous. Um, and my mother taught me to sew when I was six on the sewing machine and I remember the blues singer very well. And I remember being told by my mother that I couldn't cut armholes <laughs> and, and I being kind of appalled that my mother just didn't think everything I did was perfect. But my parents have always been very encouraging, very positive, very proud but unerringly truthful about your shortcomings as well. <laughs> so your mum was really the one that kind of introduced you to loving fashion and yes I think so my mother has always had her own very particular style but so has my dad um they're both actually very fashion conscious and they there was always an interest in culture in the arts in music in the theater in reading books um certainly that was you know, a very important part of growing up was being exposed to all these things so that you would be a well, a, a well-cultured person. Right. How were you – what were your me- early memories of, like, film and television and what you were exposed to and how you felt about it? Well, my dad is a big movie buff. Um, his interests really are – um, pre-1930, um, silent films are a particular speciality of dads. He's also b- was very interested in the development of colour photography. So all these sort of arcane crafts were in the background. I knew what an autochrome was. I understood, you know, the two-colour green and red process... And I remember my dad always taking us to Roseville Cinema to see – I remember seeing – I think the first film I ever saw was with my mum and dad and I spent most of the time under the seat. I was three. It was The Jungle Book, the cartoon, and I was very scared of the snake, allegedly. (laughs) And I think one of my big memories was going to Roseville Cinema to see a new print of The Wizard of Oz with my dad and just thinking how amazing the trick of going from the black and white reel to the colour reel um, worked. And my dad explaining it to me, saying, you know, it's an optical illusion because we're really, as the door opens, it's actually, it's not an optical, it's just a splice between a black and white and a colour reel, but your eye mixes it together. And I watched a lot of black and white movies on Australian television on Saturday afternoon with my dad and he would explain how things worked Mm. and how people made things or how the tricks were done 
and we were taken to see all the children's classics, whether it was, you know, a special screening of the remastering of Dumbo or Fantasia, which was also terrifying. Mm. Um, And I think that those things I really remember from my childhood and I loved the movies. I loved the experience of seeing beautiful things. Um, I loved costume dramas. I loved anything that had a lot of nice clothes in it. And that was really, movies were a big part of my growing up because my father was brought up in a strict Presbyterian household where movies were a treat Um, and he just lived for those double features on Saturdays at Roseville or Linfield Cinema. Um, My father was born in the 30s so he grew up during the war years and um, yeah, I, I, I think I loved the fact that it took you to a more glamorous place than Linfield, Australia. <laughs> and weren't you also an usherette at some point at the Roseville Cinema? Yes, I was an usherette at the Roseville Cinema in my late teenage years. And it was a, you know, it was a great experience to... Your first job in the industry. My first job. And I I really enjoyed it. Um, I got to learn how to make chock tops and... Oh, no, it was <laughs> fabulous. And, you know, it was really nice to have Strictly Ballroom ended up playing for one year, I think, or <gasps> over a year at Roseville Cinema. Can you imagine that? Wow. That must have been really cool thinking about that teenage you that yes. used to stand in the back probably of a lot yeah. of those movies and watch them over and over again, right? Yes, absolutely. I've seen Gandhi a lot. <laughs> Um, and then you you studied visual arts um, and then pattern cutting and design. You did a lot of you you kind of explored a lot of different things. What what was driving you? What what were you were you looking for one thing or you just were curious? I think I was really confused about my direction um, in life. I always loved art and craft and drawing and making and clothes and I think that just in those late teens was my rebellion time where I was just exploring a lot of things and I hadn't really found my niche yet and it was yeah it was it was a bit of a trying time I think for my parents because they just were you know they wanted like all parents now I understand being a parent. They just want you to be able to support yourself um, and kind of be happy. And I think they were concerned that I wouldn't find that. And luckily, by happenstance, I started working as an apprentice, sewing in the Sydney rag trade. And I was doing some overtime and I heard a radio ad for a job to be a designer on a youth year project at the Q. In Penrith and I applied for the job and I got it and that kind of made me see that maybe that would combine um, my love of clothes, my love of creating an environment and I auditioned uh, for NIDA and I got in and that kind of started me knowing that's what I wanted to do 
And I think it was – I was really clear that it was a vocation rather than a, just a job. I really felt connected to the process of being a part of a team that tells stories. And at NIDA, did you, do you all work people who are in different areas of NIDA? You all come together and make things together and that's how it sort of works? Is that – well? That happens really um, from the second year, your second year onward. In the first year, it's very much, well, when I was there, a studio-based mm. process um, and you're also staff on the other productions that are being done. So, yes, I suppose it is a very collaborative thing from the get-go. It was, you know, the first year was really tough. You know, I had to find my feet I had to find discipline. I had to find some executive functioning skills that maybe <laughs> I didn't have. Um, yeah, it was a it was a great learning process, um, and I had a lot of great mentors or people that kind of pushed me and told me a few home truths that I needed to hear, and I'm really grateful for that that time so at what point did you and Baz start collaborating you were both at NIDA at the same time that's where you met or not no he graduated he's vastly older than me <laughs> I um he, silly me yeah um he graduated before um I started so I started in 86 um, I turned 21 and he had graduated in 85. Unbeknownst to me, I'd actually seen their graduating play, which was a musical. And I remember being in tears afterwards thinking how inexorably bad it was <laughs> and thinking, what have I signed up to? <laughs> I hope that the, this theatre, you know, kind of, this theatre game perks up because if we're going to be doing this, this is just horrendous. <laughs> and then um, I saw later in my first year, Neil Armfield directed a play and I remember just watching it every single time. It was fantastic. It was a Louis Naurer play and I'm going to forget the name of it but it was set in the Tasmanian forest and it was a group of... Um, sort of like Tasmanian hillbillies that were kind of stuck in the 19th century and it kind of cut backwards and forwards to um, the current day which was actually the 1940s and the war. But anyway, it was a great and it was beautifully designed. Tess Gofield did beautiful costumes. The set was amazing and I realised that you know, when you have a brilliant director like Neil Armfield, you can make extraordinary things. Richard Roxburgh was in it. He was fantastic. Um, yeah, I, I'm sort of rambling on. but So that obviously had a big impact on you because that kind of crystallised where you saw you... Yes, you I saw your, I could do... Your talents. Yeah, I could use my talents and... Yeah, uh, we – Baz and I met through um, – in second year he was looking because he had all these bicentennial 
theatre um, projects that were funded as part of the Bicentennial Initiative. And he was looking for a sort of contemporaries to help him design. So he came to NIDA, he looked at the second year exhibition and he saw Angus Strathy and I's work and he thought it was good and Elizabeth Butcher said, yes, I think these are the two people you should meet. So what was the exhibition of yours, just out of curiosity? I, it, I So there were a, I can't remember what the costume drawings were for what show that I did, but there was a be, I did costumes and we put up a couple of different um, models that we had been designing. I know one of them was Albenberg's Lulu, which I did in a concrete box with heaps of crashed chandeliers on the floor and there was like a – I set it in Weimar, Germany and a big car um, – Lulu's actually stabbed – in a sort of German Weimar Republic big black, I can't remember the brand of the car, but it's driven on and she's stabbed in the back and her body was thrown out of it. <laughs> and um, I think Angus had done this incredible set also for Lulu, which was sort of set in Hong, in Hong Kong in amongst these sort of towering... Um, buildings covered with neon lights. Anyway, Baz thought they were both very interesting ideas. And I knew of Baz because he had done a second-year devised play called Strictly Ballroom. And he... And you'd seen it? No, I hadn't seen it. But everyone talked about it. (laughs) And we had to listen to Endless because he'd won at the International theatre show and I just thought like what kind of name is Baz anyway <laughs> like really <laughs> so he started calling remember and it was in the days where we didn't have mobile phones and it was just on the answering machine and this guy called Baz kept calling saying you know I'd like to meet you as prospectively work with you and I'd just be like who is this person and eventually I called back and we made an appointment to meet. Um, he was living in King's Cross above a brothel allegedly. <laughs> and I remember I was running late because I was making an outfit to wear to the interview. <laughs> and I was about ten minutes late and I was like, oh, shit, I'm late. Anyway, and I was buzzing and buzzing the buzzer and no one was answering. And I went, uh, I've blown it. You know, I have not showed up on time. And then, lo and behold, Baz Lerman and Craig Pierce come behind me wearing towels, shirtless, <laughs> with thongs on, coming up the street. <laughs> and I go, hello. And they go, oh, hello. And I think, oh, what's going on here? <laughs> Anyway, they'd just been for a swim, I think, at the Boy Charlton Pool and they were running late as well. So, anyway, we went upstairs. Um, Baz offered me a stale croissant. We had a coffee and we just started talking and the interview just went for hours, you know, and hours and we just talked about everything from Madonna to Bertolt Brecht to the big Merino to everything. And then it was dark and I thought, oh, I better go home. 
And I just said, oh, well, okay, goodbye. And I was really upset that he just didn't offer me the job on the spot because I felt like, you know, if an interview goes for like six hours, surely you should get the job. <laughs> and he said, oh, you know, I'm going to meet a number of new people and then afterwards, you know, I'll give you a call. So that was our first meeting and Baz has very, I think, eloquently said that he describes our our relationship as a conversation that started many, many years ago and we've kept conversing. I like to add in sometimes in very loud voices (laughs) because it's not always smooth sailing over 30 years of working and living together and having a family and that's a long time and so many things have happened but ultimately the conversation with all of its ebbs and flows remains really at the centre of what we like about each other. Right. And you've never wanted to work with anybody else since then? Look... That's a really good question. It's because it's like a family business, it's like being a Meyer and running Meyer's department store, like being one of the founders. You don't really think about it. <laughs> it's not that you think whether you'd like to or wouldn't like to. It's that I feel as invested. It's not like when Baz, absolutely, he is the auteur. He sits in a room with blank walls and comes up with ideas and but I am part of that I'm the first audience I'm part of the process of that creation I mean I don't take away from the fact that and you're not just a a person for for hire hire. you get to actually co-create and realize his vision exactly your own vision exactly I get to contribute in a way that I wouldn't in another circumstance and I feel an ownership, you know, like I feel that Baz is the pilot and I'm a co-pilot, you know. Ultimately, yes, he is the boss but I'm the co-boss, you know, and I get the opportunity of being an eight. I think this all comes back to my childhood and this feeling that I needed to have agency, I hope that's the right word, but some kind of control over my destiny, right, that I needed to be, I don't need to be the pilot, but I need to feel that my voice has some impact in the process of creating. And so, you know, this is... It's like it's good talking about this because now in saying this to you, I really do realise how important it is to me to be part of the process and to go, okay, you want to make this. I wonder how we're going to make it. You know, what are your ideas? What are we going to do? These are my ideas. Oh, that's not a good one. This is a good one. You like that? Oh, that's pushed that to a different place. Oh, I like that idea. You know, and that I think is what everybody who works with Baz likes about it is that you can be the lowest person on the totem pole traditionally in title and if you have a great idea, he will just go, great idea, he'll acknowledge you for it and he'll move that idea into the process. So so give me an example of... When you're the production designer and the costume designer, 
on a movie like Moulin Rouge or Great Gatsby, what does it actually look like? Like what are you doing and how do you manage it all? Well, um, The Great Gatsby was the first time... No, it was the second time I entirely did the sets and costumes. Um, And it is really challenging. There is a crunch moment where you actually think... It's like I've run a couple of marathons and it's at that, you know, 22-mile mark where you just think you're going to die or you have that moment where you just think, hang on, my head is going to explode, I can't do this, I'm not going to meet any of the deadlines, this is a total disaster, why did I think this was a good idea? And Well, I don't think there are many people who have ever done both jobs concurrently, are there? N- no. <laughs> I mean, Walter Plunkett used to be a production designer, but he would oversee other designers, but he was kind of the overarching person at MGM. So, yeah, I mean, basically it's when you're in pre-production and you're trying... You're at the point where the sets have to start getting built. It all happens at the same time. So you've drawn all the sets. They're always, always all over budget. You have to cut them. You have to change it. There are always sort of these revolutions of change at this one time. And then all the principal actors and their characters are coming into focus and you have to deliver all the drawings and all the designs and get all the feedback sort of all at once, synthesise it and kind of make it happen. And it's, it's that moment in time where money... The practicalities, deadlines and art all kind of are in a... I hope that this is an R-rated podcast. It's oh, yeah. a clusterfuck. <laughs> and you just do... I remember crying, like crying a lot. And I'm a very anxious person and I have been known to take a bit of anti-anxiety medication occasionally. And during... I don't know why I thought this was a good idea... But at the beginning of Gatsby, I thought, I don't need this anti-anxiety medication anymore. I'm going to go cold turkey. Anyway, (laughs) biggest mistake of my life. (laughs) So needless to say, I put myself straight back on that medication. But I think it's really interesting looking at a new project that we might be going to going forward as to how to alleviate and more elegantly design the design process so that these clusterfucks kind of don't happen. Because I think it's a bit like... Making a movie is a bit like having a baby or giving birth. Like, if you remembered the process of being pregnant and giving birth, you probably wouldn't do it a second or a third or a fourth time, but you just only remember the good bits, any of the bad bits, so you kind of forget those stumbling blocks. So I think one of my aims in the future is to design the process more smoothly. Um, But to talk in practical terms, like a typical day starts at around 7.30 on set and 
I usually go to the where we're filming that day. So I'll be there before crew call. And I'll just make sure the doors haven't fallen off, the doors open and shut. That's one of Baz's big bugbears. On a box set, doors have to open and shut. And invariably, doors never open and shut. <laughs> never, ever. And I don't understand why. I don't understand why they open and shut perfectly when you're there half an hour before crew call and they don't after. But <laughs> you make sure everyone has what they need. Um, then I'll go around see the actors in hair and makeup. If we're establishing a new look, I'll be in even earlier because I'll be there with all the references, getting everybody into the new look, making sure Baz has a chance to comment and f do any fixes that we need on the look. Then after the set is squared away, I'll go and see what's being made for the future. And it'll be a combination of going into the paint shop, into the carpenters, um, anything that's been constructed, made or sculpted. Um, I'll go up also to check on all the drawings that are being done for the future sets, um, have meetings with the set decorator who'll be presenting all of the set decoration for future stuff. Then I'll go and be very hands-on in the wardrobe department. So there'll be fittings, fittings with crowd. And so you're at the carpenters and I'll the go to the carpenters, I'll see all of the metal work, I'll go to the sculptors and quite often there'll be a crisis or whatever. Like, you know, we'll decide that Baz wants a close-up of um, something that we don't have ready or whatever and we just have to rush and make it. Um, I'll go into wardrobe, be very hands-on. Um, I'm very particular about buttons because um, something Baz taught me, a third of all movies are in close-up. So one of the things you really see is any neckline detail and the first three buttons mm. on any garment. So I spend a lot of time fussing about that sort of thing. And then this is when a typical day when you're shooting on a stage and all of the workshops are around. When you're on location or um, in a hardship location, it requires a lot more travelling. So, for instance, on Australia, it would be an hour and a half drive to set every morning and when you needed to go back to the wardrobe truck, it wasn't like, oh, I'm just going to run over there. It would be you would have to say to yourself, well, that's a 25-minute walk or I'm going to get a lift back to it. And also you had to be prepared for any eventuality. I was laughing the other day because we were talking about a scene when Magari and the drover are sitting under the Boab and they're um, making dinner as the sun sets. And Baz wanted, because one of the delicacies in the top end for Indigenous people is Barney is Goanna. The issue with Goanna is that it is actually a woman's, it's one of, it's part of the collecting and gathering. So women should really um, dispatch Goannas. So we had an Indigenous props man and I said to him, you know, Baz would really like a Goanna 
Abani <laughs> for this scene with Magari. Do you think you could get me one? Then we had a big talk about I wonder if his granny could go and get it because I know that it was women's work and she would have to hit it over the head and blah, blah, blah. So <laughs> finally, by some miracle, one of the women, um, my fabulous Indigenous propsman, gets a, one of the his crew to get me a goanna. Anyway, so we have this beautiful shot. We have the real goanna being toasted over the flames and it's just miraculous. I go, all my dreams have come true at once. The goanna has been humanely killed. It will be eaten eventually. Not tonight because we're going to repeat this tomorrow. But, right, so... Everything seems to be going well. Then we start rushing to do another take of this as the magic hour is coming. And I'm rushing and I'm looking. So we're probably like three hours before sunset and I'm thinking, right, great. So I go to my props man and I go, right, let's get the goanna out of the freezer. This will be the last time we use it. You guys should be able to eat it tonight, no problem. So he goes, oh, I'm sorry, we ate it last night. <laughs> I go, what do you mean you ate it last night? He says, well, goannas go all mushy in the freezer and they're no good when they're frozen. So we ate it. And I'm standing there going, I'm an hour and a half away from the nearest place and poor Bev Dunn, who I think, who is my set decorator, who was about 25 months pregnant, got in a car and drove an hour and 25 minutes to the nearest um, um, service station, managed to find, because it was the top end, a plastic alligator toy, drove back. We wrapped it in burlap to increase the size of it, (laughs) glued it on with a hot glue and just hoped for the best. Anyway, if you watch it, you'll see this gorgeous goanna being roasted and then this strange kind of (laughs) misshapen blob. And that is is filmmaking, folks. (laughs) That the glamour and the hardship. sums it all up right yes, there, doesn't it? It is. Because <laughs> it was really, I just thought, oh, this is fantastic. Like it was just a perfect moment of a kind of fabulous integrative moment between, you know, the Indigenous props crew, the cast, everything, but no. <laughs> um, and so many of the sets that you're involved with are so visually stunning and look like they must take so much work. Particularly I think about like the party scenes in Gatsby and and inside the Moulin Rouge and things like that. You're, both of you, I gather, are very um, detail-oriented because it takes you a long time to make each film. You, you really – do you – would you describe yourselves – I won't talk for Baz, but yourself as a perfectionist or – how 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 long does it take you to get something right to your satisfaction? Well, I don't think you ever get anything completely to your satisfaction. There's always one annoying detail. Um, 
Because I think perfectionists also tend to be very ambitious in what they're trying to achieve. And so you're always chasing ambition and perfection and they're kind of mutually exclusive to some degree because there'll always be a little something you felt you could have done better or gotten to. But because you're reaching as high as you possibly can, usually the ambition outweighs the little tiny rough edges that you see as a person. Um, But yes, I am a perfectionist and detail does obsess me, visual detail. Like it'll drive me, little things will drive me completely crazy. Like I'll look at something in my house and someone will have put, you know, a bunch of flowers together and I'll just go, no, I have to get rid of that. That is pushing me over the edge. And it's the (laughs) same thing on the sets. I'll just walk around. And what I can't believe is how much a set, but it absolutely makes sense when you remember moving house, okay? So when you move house, you just cannot believe how much stuff you have, how much paper, how much just unbridled crap and so in movie making I always feel like the camera sucks away about 30% of the impact of any room so even the hall of mirrors will probably be less spectacular than on film if it's just kind of shot without a thought And I think that's what Baz does brilliantly. He can actually get the camera to give you an image of something as you remember it being, as it felt to you at the time. And part of the process of that is you kind of have to fill the frame almost 30% more than it would be in real life for it to have impact, for it to reach through and I remember with the orchids in the Gatsby scene in Nick's house when Daisy comes to tea and we brought orchids on set and I just kept saying, like, Bev, look, it's like nothing's here. We seem to keep bringing them but it's like a vacuum. <laughs> it's not like a black hole of orchids. And Baz just walked in and said, we need ten times more. <laughs> and so we were just, you know, going to every single place where we could find a fake orchid, this orchid, whatever, and kind of putting this tableau together. And for me, I just think that is an incredibly beautifully shot scene. And I'm so happy Baz pushed us to create that dynamic image. When Leo saw it, he just thought it was too much. But when you see it on screen, the storytelling is so clear that this man is just overreaching for this dream he has of Daisy, like the clarity of the storytelling through the detail and the, um, you know, and that Baz thinks about every book on the bookshelf in, um, in Nick's house or... What is the house? What's the history of the house? How was it built? Who built it? When was it built? And, 
you know, I mean, all that detail and history that you never hear about echoes on screen, I think, because you feel the care and the detail that the people who've made that environment have put in. And because everything is a collaboration with Baz, as you were saying, the actors are obviously part of that collaboration. So when you, you mentioned things like well, Leo thought it was too much, what, how is that balance for you on a set knowing that, that everybody's encouraged to have an opinion and yet you have a vision and you know what Baz's vision is and yet you have to sort of placate the actors and maybe sometimes they do have a good idea? I think that one of the great things that Baz has taught me is that listening and particularly listening to to opinions that are different or unfavourable to your work actually open up for excellence because when people say things to you, sometimes they're not saying you know, their solution is wrong. But what they bring up is really important and is helping you to focus and sharpen the idea. So it's not about throwing, you know, the baby out with the bathtub. It's about like if you can listen to people and actually understand what they're asking you and be open to those things, it actually makes your work better. You know, it's not to say when you're under a lot of stress that it isn't annoying, <laughs> but it also makes the work better and you have to be on your game more and you have to think more about what you're doing. And actors, I've had the great pleasure of working with incredibly intelligent wonderful, trusting, communicative actors. And honestly, the actors that want to contribute ideas are the best because they just care and they're helping you. They're helping everything work because ultimately all I'm doing is providing a room and some clothes. Ultimately... Bit of an understatement, but okay. No, because an actor has to inhabit those clothes and that environment. Why do, um, you know, perfume brands and clothing brands, why are they hiring actors to personify the experience of their brand? Because actors bring... They inhabit the clothes. They inhabit the world. They bring it all to life. You know, Annie Hall without costumes, without Diane Keaton is <laughs> a nothing. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. And I think it's that, it's that thing, it's the combination of the dynamic between Baz and the actor, his vision for the world, his vision for their performance, their collaboration, the collaboration that the actor and Baz has with me, with the clothes, with the environment, all come together to form a world that has a logic. Wow. 
Um, so you you must spend is it would it be weeks, months, years putting together all the palettes and textures and fabrics and everything else for each project you do. I mean, what's that process like? It, it could be you could put a lot of time into something and then it maybe never eventuates. Well, yes, like on Alexander that never eventuated and we we have beautiful design books, incredible incredible design books. And I think that's just par for the course, you know, you kind of you win some and you lose some, but I enjoy the process of designing. Like I enjoy the process of imagining and trying to describe what I believe Baz is wanting to see, that is a good process. I I like that. Um, So nothing is ever lost because you always develop yourself or develop a skill you didn't know you had in that process. You know, it's not just a – it's not a dead end. Right. When you look back on your career, do you have any that you're most proud of? Are there some that you just feel, wow, that even – overdid what I thought I could do with that? Um, Everybody always laughs because (laughs) I always say, oh, Australia. Just the the physical feat of building all those environments in such a far-flung place. And I love Nicole's costumes in that movie. I think they're some of my – because they're really simple – and simplicity is really difficult. And so I love the imagery of Australia. I was very lucky to be up in Kununurra on that set. And the fact that that entire house and everything was built from scratch to look like it had been there forever and all of the things that you did were, were just blew my mind, especially knowing how far away you were from any kind of civilization to do that. And I loved like all the Indigenous research we did and I loved the process of kind of creating the character of the house and it was just great working with the Indigenous cast. It was just an amazing design experience, very difficult and it was a very difficult time in my life. I had two children under four Wow. I was just constantly exhausted as all mothers, I'm sure. We were just the entire household throughout the whole of Australia were just sick all the time because, you know, they were going to little school um, and they would just bring back everything from foot and mouth disease to the bubonic plague. And yeah. I just felt <laughs> like I was always, you know, had walking pneumonia or some kind of hideous rash or something. So, um, you know, and I, it was very personally difficult for many, many, many reasons, that movie. Um, but I don't remember the pain when I look at the pictures. So I think I was a much happier person personally um, when I worked on Gatsby and I loved Gatsby, don't get me wrong. It was just a fabulous experience. I got to do things I loved. But I think that just in terms of really 
pushing the boundaries of what was physically possible for me, Australia was really – it's a miracle given what we were all going through. My, I, when I think my set decorator pregnant, eight months pregnant, we forced her to go home. Mm. She had the baby and ten days later she was back at work and we were all minding the baby <laughs> in the car carrier. I felt very guilty about that. Anyway, I suppose that um, she I'm sure always, the baby doesn't remember. And I'm it's sure, a good story. Yeah, and sure. And also, you've got to remember that in a tribal society, the baby would just be right in a carrier. It takes a village. <laughs> it takes a village, and we all just—it was an amazing experience. Mm. So, one question I ask everybody is: given the size of our population, um, and there was you—you you guys sort of came in one of the previous waves, but right now there are more Australians getting off the plane every day, many of them who are going to be wildly successful in front of and behind the cameras. Why do you think that is? Because it is a pretty amazing statistic given the size of our little country. I think that if you want to be in our industry and you leave Australia, you have to have enormous chutzpah, you have to be a really hard worker, you have to be very flexible and you have to have those bush engineering skills that meet um, innovation. I think that certainly and good education. I mean we have great um, cultural and artistic educational institutions. We have NIDA, we have the Australian Film and Television School, we have um, brilliant acting academies in Perth and in Melbourne. And I think that... All sponsored by the government. Yes, exactly. We're very lucky that in the 1970s this idea of free education allowed for these institutions to um, be started and we now, as a result of that government investment, have all these extraordinarily talented people in front and behind the camera who not only who have skill and education and I think that combined with having watched an enormous amount of both English and American television for this younger generation, particularly of actors, they have no problem with the American accent or the English accent because it's been in their ears since they were babies. They've all watched Sesame Street They've watched millions of American television programs and which is basically dialect coaching from when they were tiny and they've listened to millions of English um, television programs. Yeah, it's true. Um, you mentioned being the, com the family business. Does that extend to the next generation? Are Lily and William uh, showing any signs of wanting to join the family business? Interesting you should say that. I've never thought that that would be the case necessarily but Lily is now at the um, – I, I won't say the exact high school because she'll get angry with me but she's basically at a creative high school um, that centres around design and she has said I think I might come and, you know, she, she will give me a run for my money. Whatever Lily decides to do, um, 
She certainly has her dad's director gene and I'm very good at following her instructions. <laughs> but William not so... Oh, no, William's a great storyteller. He's obsessed with storytelling and, just like his father, mashups. He loves the world of manga and comic books and he's really into Dungeons and Dragons and this thing I'd never heard of until he told me about LARPing, which is live action role play, where you basically you're sort of in this improvised fantasy world and you play out a game based on a series of rules, but you're actually in the game. Wow. I know. It sounds like there could be a movie in there for all of you. Uh, Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Before we finish, we didn't really mention much about Strictly Ballroom and Romeo and Juliet and they're such iconic films too. What are your memories um, of those, like both good and the challenges? Look, I just remembered being on the brink of being fired all the time on Strictly Ballroom, but I came through and what do you mean being fired? Well, Were you it was not my together first then job. Or? No, it was my first job and the producer was a bit like, is she going to be able to pull this off? But basically after about ten weeks of me being on the job, she realised that I was kind of a secret weapon. So we became besties and she would just say to me how much – because remember, Baz and I came from a theatre background and we – believed in the magic of the movies and we'd read all the books about building scenery and working in a studio like at MGM. So we were all into building sets. Remember, when we made Strictly Borum, um, really only expatriate films had scenery. All Australian movies were location-based films. Mm. Very rarely did you build a set for anything. And then we started building sets And it ended up being far more efficient and cheaper than going to a location. And so we would be just churning out these tiny little corners of scenery in a few hours and just being quite efficient. And so I remember it just being a magical experience. I remember going to Cannes and um, we were doing the windows in the... At the Carlton. Wow. Um, Bill and I, Bill Marin, who worked with us at that time, were in the windows at the Carlton doing a kind of window display for Strictly Ballroom. (laughs) And it was the night after the screening, which had been magical and there'd been a party and we were feeling a tiny bit worse for wear. We were in our socks setting up this um, window and we looked out of the window and there seemed to be all these very angry people all like pushing against the glass of the office at at the bottom of the Carlton. Like I reckon in that little courtyard space there would have been 150 people. And I'm like, look, going, Bill, who are these people and why are they gesticulating at us and what is going on? Anyway, the receptionist arrived and... She only spoke French. So I was speaking to her and she said, uh, I think they're people who've come to buy the mi- full movie. And I'm going, what? 
And so then we were trying to find and it's like the days before mobile phones. You don't realise how hard. So the whole of the Australian selling team were having breakfast on the beach. But then if we opened the door, <laughs> we were... We were going to – these people – I mean, it was like people – put like this was a bit of a mob scene. We were going to let them in. So we were kind of trapped. Anyway, finally, it was just this momentous occasion where I think for the first time in a long, long time, the Australian contingent selling this movie had this mass hysteria outside all trying to buy the movie. So that was a really, really great moment. And um, Romeo and Juliet, I just loved living in Mexico City. It was so romantic and beautiful and um, just being able to... First time I built, or we, I should say, it wasn't just me, um, built an outdoor set with the proscenium of the broken... ..that framed the sea of the broken um, cinema. And, yeah, I just... Just beautiful, romantic experiences of a another worldliness that um, going into a real world, the Mexico of the late 90s, and at the same time creating a world that was kind of feeding off that world. Oh, I loved it. Uh, are you able to say what's next or are you still deciding? We are still deciding. But soon, soon all everything will become clear. Is that how it works too, that you're, you're both collaborating on multiple things at the same time and then you wait till all the stars align behind one of them or...? No, it's very much a terrible soul-searching process for Baz because he commits himself so completely to the success of any given project that to choose what he is going to put his energy into is a really personal and gruelling process which he's right in the middle of. So I try not to become too attached to anything because otherwise it's kind of heart, to some degree heartbreaking that you've kind of... You've fallen in love with that. Then you have to leave that boyfriend <laughs> or girlfriend. Well, you might have a different opinion about what yes. you hope he'll make the decision on than he does. Yes. Well, I'm, I could talk to you all day about this stuff, but we have to wrap it up. So I am so happy, Catherine, that you were able to sit down and, and talk about your amazing journey. I think you've inspired another whole generation of people particularly Aussies out there listening. So um, thank you for sharing it with us. Thank you for asking me all those questions and um, for this little bit of free therapy. I'm going to feel a lot lighter today after I'm burdening myself with you. So thank you very much, Jenny. <laughs> By the time you hear this, it's likely the news will be out exactly which of their projects Baz and CM have decided to move forward on as their next big film together. Whatever it is, we already know without doubt it will be a labour of love and definitely worth the wait. That's all. Until next time, that's all from Aussies in Hollywood. Aussies in Hollywood was presented by me, Jenny Cooney, and recorded in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Audio production was by Nick Slater 
and executive producer was Jenny Goggin. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the app or look me up on iTunes.